today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister has formally announced he will be running in the 2019 election. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek is with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Henry, thank you uh, so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Always enjoy it, Scott. So I guess no real surprise here, obviously. Uh, That being said, as the Prime Minister moves forward, what are his biggest challenges? Is this a cakewalk for him? I don't think so. I mean, he is in this sort of a mid midterm, you know, midterm low, uh, and the problem is now we're getting almost uh, lasting almost uh, three years into his term. So he's really got to turn on the heat and really get, you know, bring back the people who voted for him the last time. And uh, so it, it's it's something he's going to have to work on. And I expect he's going to be talking a lot more about economics and uh, what he's doing well for the uh, country in terms of the economy. So that that's what I would expect, and I expect to hear a lot of them on that. Uh, what will be the difference with this campaign and the first campaign, do you think? Well, as I, as I said, I think, uh, keep, keeping what I just said, the, I think the economy is going to be far more important, uh, that he's going to have to convince people he's been a good economic manager, uh, I think they'll expect that when you're first running, uh, people pay attention to a lot of other things, including personality. And of course, Sunny Ways was a was a big uh, yeah. big thing in in those days, especially since he had a rather dour opponent in Stephen Harper. But uh, yeah, he's going to have to emphasize the economy. And let me point out, this is, it's very interesting how his. Um, his, uh, you know, appearance on the scene and uh, as prime minister and as things go along, a lot of the things that happen to him or that he does shadows his father. So his father was the big, you know, sort of rock star, a celebrity in 1968. Mm-hmm. And he ran on all sorts of, you know, flashy issues and stylistic things and personality. And although he never used the word sunny days, uh, I mean, he he could have uh, if he, he knew that. But I mean, yeah. so Justin, you know, when he ran for the first time, a lot of things in common with the father. Now, when, when he, but his father got into trouble after four years because people thought he wasn't paying enough attention to the economy. There was a little recession uh, when he came up to the 72 election. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure the lessons of the father are not lost on Justin. I don't think he wants to find himself, uh, you know, in a situation where people say, well, he's a nice guy and he's an interesting guy, but he hasn't been able to manage the economy. And so I think that's why I think we're going to hear a lot of stuff about what he's doing. And, you know, a lot of times the economy is out of the control of the of the prime minister. There's so many other factors, what happens in Washington, the rest of the world, and the economic cycles that that go through. But they either get the credit or the blame for a lot of that, which isn't really, they don't have a great deal of control over. But they have to address it and look like they're talking about it. So I, I expect he will. Now, in terms of I was just looking at some uh, economic data this morning, or economic consumer data, and we did go through a period about a month or so ago where people were really pessimistic. Now, they seem to be picking up. Uh, will that continue into the next year? We'll have to see. But people are slightly more optimistic than they were a month or six weeks ago. What about the Kinder Morgan pipeline issue, uh, w- and especially with, with the West and, and B.C. and Alberta? Uh, is this going to come back to bite Trudeau? The, yeah, the problem with the with the pipelines is that it's very hard to win on that kind of issue. It's not something 
no, I I would love to talk. You know, be in charge of if I were in government because you're going to, you know, you 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 have a opinion, you know, divided in various ways and a very intense opposition. On the other hand, you you know you need to, you know, uh, deal with the economic benefits of pipelines and. Uh, there are risks into the environment, and a lot of people are often upset with it, and uh, you know, for various environmental reasons, or even because it's going close to their homes or places of business, and they're worried about leaks and that sort of thing. So it's it's not an easy one. I mean, probably the majority of the population would like, uh, you know, would would be in favor of what he's done there. But I think there's just a lot of intense opposition, and they really are upset with him. And probably a bunch of those people voted for him the last time around. So he's probably going to lose a lot of those people. I suspect he says it will get built. Uh, will it? And is will this be a, a splintering issue for him? Well, it, I think I think it will get built. I don't know. Exactly exactly when and how quickly, but, I mean, he's so committed to it, I just think it is going to be built. Um, and it is splintering. I mean, it would, it's, it'll take votes away from him. Some of those people who are now upset about the pipeline probably voted for him the last time, and, and you know, and the issue is so important to them that they went, might not, uh, you know, vote for him this time. So, you know, when you're going for the re-election, you like to bring most of the people back who voted for you the first time, but you have to take into account there's some people who will be angry at you and because you haven't lived up to their expectations, and they won't vote, you know, for you again. But what you've got to do is get some people who maybe voted against you last time and bring them over to you so you can get that second uh, majority and I I I certainly think that's possible and uh, I think you know you'd still I mean if I was putting money on it today I think I'd have to believe that he's going to get reelected and maybe very much with the majority that'll be a little harder to predict but you know he's he I'm sh- I would think that he's uh, he'll be back for a second term minority or majority uh has he or would he learn anything from the defeat of Kathleen Wynne in Ontario and by that I mean I I remember uh, very early, early on in the campaign, and um, one of the polling companies releasing what were the top five most important things uh, to citizens, and then uh, Kathleen Wynne's platform, and the two were completely opposite. It was it just seemed very, very much out of touch. A lot of feel good issues, a lot of social issues, uh, but not really what were what was concerning to the average citizen: jobs, economy, the kids, healthcare, all that sort of stuff. Uh, education and such. Now, obviously, that's on a provincial level. Mm. But it, it, does Trudeau have, um, does he have to worry about falling into the same trap in that it's not just about feel good, people want results, people want, it, people want action on the bread and butter issues every day? I, I think I think he's more realistic about that, in fact, than she was. Uh, I think there is, you know, two tendencies that sort of we go back and forth with uh, in in not only in Canada but in other countries, and this way go back in time. You usually have two 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 sort of uh, themes uh, uh, in the political political spectrum. We've got some people who are, who come out, parties who come out, and say, "Listen, we've got a bunch of big channel challenges coming down the road. Uh, we've got to do things about them today. We're going to have to sacrifice today for a better." better tomorrow. That was really Kathleen Wynne over the last uh, four years. And uh, we're now hearing from, well, uh, 
well, a theme I picked up from a conservative poster who said, well, uh, people really didn't like that sort of message anymore. They, it became a message of, well, he said, this is his words, selfishness. But what it is is as people say, we're tired of being, you know, making sacrifices today for tomorrow. We want to have a, a good life today. And, and, and I think Kathleen Wynne went for a lot of long-term issues that were requiring sacrifices today. And basically, people, people said, you know, enough of this. We want to, we want to have a good life now. You know, we want to, we don't want to make all these sacrifices, you know, rationally, we know we should do it, but man, we want to have a nice, a a good life now. And, uh, I think, um, that was her problem. I don't think he's ever quite been that way. I think he recognizes you have to deliver the goods to people today, as well as doing things for the future. I think he's a more realistic leader. I, I think Kathleen Wynne, when she got her majority, was really not realistic about what she could get people to sacrifice for. So I think I think he he already is uh, you know would never be like Wynne. So um, I, th- I think he's going to be better off here in trying to balance these two. But what it means is that you know important sacrifices for the future probably won't be there. Are we a different Canada today than we were the day he was elected? I, I I do I think so I think we're I think there is more optimism in the country he you know that's one thing leaders can do is generate optimism and say listen uh, you know things are going to get better things are going to uh, you know we're going to do things so things get better and better and you know we're we're going to be we're going to be happier and is the whole notion of sunny ways I think I think you have to be optimistic you have to have a vision saying this is where we're going and we're going to be much better off with it. Uh, and as I said, I think a little bit earlier, it's really then about uh, an argument about what kind of costs we have to do to get that vision. But sell it, you know, convincing people that you know life is dark and glum and that we got to hunker down all the time. Pe- people just get tired of it. They don't. They don't want to hear that. But they do. They will respond to though a positive vision, and it's just a question of how much sacrifices you can get them to do. What about they, Donald Trump south of the border? How will that affect this? Obviously, whenever Donald Trump starts picking fights with Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's popularity goes up. Um, so, it, it, does it really matter how he deals with them? It's what the public perception is. Well, I think they think he probably has dealt well with it, but I do think that people got worried about the whole are worried about the whole NAFTA negotiations. And they are worried about getting, you know, things, you know, our economy being sort of partially or maybe a lot frozen out of the U.S. So there is a lot of concern about that. And we are going to have disruptions, particularly we're into these tariff raising things. And there is going to be disruption. We are going to have higher prices on things, uh, you know, so you're going to have to pay more for orange juice, uh, things like that. Uh, and uh so that 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 is that people people are concerned about that they're worried about are their jobs going to be affected is their uh, you know wages going to be affected this is something he has to wrestle with it's a very difficult problem for him i i think probably most people if they think about it in a rational way and don't get their emotions too tied up in it say well it's a it's not an easy situation and Justin Trudeau has probably done the best he, he can do but nonetheless when people start worrying they start wondering well maybe I should go to another party what about the opposition what does uh, Jagmeet Singh and Andrew Shear we'll start with Andrew Shear what does he need to do well Shear's got especially I, heading into a convention yeah I know he's going into a convention and he's got I think uh, 
you know he's got some i think he's got some problems inside the party there there is a you know there is a strong militant base there uh, that wants him to be, you know, take a harder stand against immigrants. Of course, we see this across many, many countries. Uh, the U.S., of course, close by, and also in Europe, uh, people are worried about the destabilizing effects and the costs of taking care of a lot of immigrants. And I think that is be, that has affected some of his some of his support uh, of Trudeau's support. But uh, but for Sheer, it's a real problem because if he goes, if he starts to do become more extreme, I think he'll lose a you know moderates that he needs, and uh, so this is a difficult issue. He needs he needs to be able to sort of be a moderate conservative uh, when he going into the election. If he if he see if he's not seen as being able to control the more extreme uh, elements of his party who want uh, much stronger anti-immigrant type of policies. Uh, then he looks to be a weak leader because he can't control them. If he gives in to them and, uh, you know, adopts them as his own, which I don't think he will, you know, then then he's really too far out away from the middle. And a lot, a lot of people will then, you know, basically say, well, we've got to stay, you know, with the middle of the road type of person like Justin Trudeau. So he he's got a real he's got a real big problem. And he's and he has one other problem because, you know, I don't see it in the news. One thing that's going to aid, I think, Trudeau is the fact that he's going to get uh, these provincial elections in the center of the country over with. He's already got the one in June. People who were mad at the liberals had a chance to, you know, vent their anger and toss out the the provincial liberals. They may do the same thing in, in, in Quebec. And actually that is actually, I think, good for the federal liberal party because then once people vent their anger out on the provincial liberals, then they're more likely to say, well, maybe I went too far. Maybe I, I ought to balance things out by having a federal liberal party. So I, I would think that the, this is going to help for sure Trudeau in, in um, Ontario uh, because, you know, the uh, – People here, I think, like to have a balance. It sort of a balances between the federal and provincial election, and we'll see what happens in Quebec. But I think he'll do very well in Quebec, probably better than the last time, uh, because he will not have a, a Quebec NDP leader, official opposition leader, who was at that time. And uh, so Scheer is really, I think, going to have problems in Ontario and Quebec next, next time around. What about Jagmeet Singh? Have they lost, has the NDP lost the momentum? I mean, a couple of years ago, they were building, they were the protest vote. We saw that in B.C. and Alberta. Where's the momentum with the NDP right now? Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, Jack Layton had to work very hard over the years to build up that. Uh, he had to run a number of times. I mean, he didn't have any, he did not have early success. He had little successes, but which we often see sometimes with the NDP leaders is they have little successes. It takes them a long time. To, to bring people over before he had that big breakthrough in 2012 and uh, had a had, became the official opposition and uh, so it, it's gonna it, and now Jagmeet Singh is going through the same same sort of thing he is you know gonna lose it's it's hard for him to hold on to the support that Leighton built up in Quebec on the other hand Jagmeet Singh I think will be in some ways um, an, an attractive person in parts of Ontario and parts in British Columbia maybe in parts of Alberta as well. So, you know, he may do a little bit better than the last time. We'll have to see, or maybe not. But, it, it you know, it, this is not going to be his election. Uh, he's got to basically and, and solidify the party behind him and say, listen, we're in, we have to be in this for the long term. So even if he doesn't, even if he loses uh, some of his seats, uh, I think they'll give him a second chance, as long as he doesn't get 
really wiped out, and I don't think that's going to happen. So I do think they're, you know, he he'll do moderately well, and he'll do well enough to hang on. But you know, he's he's not going to be the official opposition after the next election. I'm I'm fairly certain of that. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, very good, Scott. Good talking to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As Toronto and Hamilton and surrounding areas from Hamilton to Toronto, the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, build condominiums, more people are looking uh, at buying at buying one, won't do so without a balcony. So what do you do? How do you incorp- the, incorporate these into the space, especially when space seems to be at quite a premium? Uh, you know, if you've got like a, uh, uh, if you've got a 400 or a 600 square foot apartment, do you want to, you know, lose 50 square feet or whatever outside? Let's bring in Andrew Harrod. He's a partner, condos.ca, licensed realtor, loft specialist at mrloft.ca and on the line now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem at all, Scott. My pleasure. So do people want a balcony or not in modern times? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think overwhelmingly the response to that question, Scott, is that uh, they do. Uh, The report that was published in the Star today uh, indicates that over 70% of people who responded uh, indicated that if they were looking for a condo, they would want uh, a balcony um, as as a a serious part of their search. So it's interesting, you know, certainly um, uh, the numbers don't lie. A lot of people do want uh, outdoor space, but... um, in my experience, in practice, these spaces are often underutilized. So people aren't really spending as much time out there as you might think. Um, so it's definitely an interesting, an interesting question. Is there an option? Is there a hybrid? Is there some sort of something we can use that is similar but not, you know, uh, 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 that serves the purpose or at least thinks it allows us to think it serves a purpose? I guess it doesn't matter how much we use it as long as we know it's there. I think, and I think that's it, Scott. I think um, you know people like the idea of a balcony in principle, but in practice, it's slightly different. And um, you know, they like the idea because it is an escape. Uh, and you know, the GTA is being built up incredibly quickly. And if you're up in uh, you know the 48th story in a, in a in a condo building, you need some, or you might even subconsciously want some kind of connection to to the outside world. So. A balcony is, you know, is a little escape from the concrete jungle, and um, so I can understand why 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 people want it. Uh, did we see? It seemed in the old days they used to be uh, huge and like half the size of the apartment. Then it seemed we were building apartments and condos that didn't have any in them whatsoever. Are we now moving back to an outdoor space? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely true that a lot of condos that are being built these days are being built with balconies that are incredibly small. I mean, you can barely fit, you know, a, 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 two chairs and a table out there, let alone much else. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there is uh, some truth to the fact that I think if, I, if, if, if an outdoor space is larger, if a balcony or a terrace is larger and more usable, that people will, will use that space more regularly. Um, but... You know, for the most part, balconies are still incredibly small. It's it's an expense that a developer has to factor in, and so, you know, insofar that they can make more money by by building larger units and charge more, I don't think we're going to see a return to condos that have large balconies. It's just going to 
push the price up for developers, and uh, I don't see them. I don't see them doing that. You're talking about the the price per square foot and and how these the size of these units have have shrunk over years. Um, when you're talking about a condo that's four or six hundred square feet, uh, do, do people want to waste that space? Would they rather have that space inside? It's a good question. I mean, for the you've got to bear in mind that um, you know it's a fairly short season that you can really use a balcony. Um, now we're not talking about a something you can use 12 months of the year. And I think a lot of people, given the choice, would uh, rather have that space inside as usable space as part of their condo. Um, I think it would cost more. I mean, it's, 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 it's more expensive for a developer to finish off that space than just leave it as an open concrete slab. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, truth in that, that I think if that space was inside, you'd get uh, you know more use out of it. And I think that you know what we're seeing is a lot of people like the idea of a condo, but for whatever reason, and there might be a variety of factors, maybe the, the condos uh, or the balcony is too small, um, or maybe you don't have the view that you were hoping for, there's no privacy, maybe it's too high, but uh, but people are just not using that space um, as, as, in ways you might think. What about privacy here, Andrew? Like, uh, again, you know, there's nothing more spectacular than being in a high-rise above a big city and, and having a tremendous view of something, whether it's water or the rest of the city or, or what have you. Uh, but many times it's another building. Um, the fact that there's other people there sitting out on theirs, looking at you sitting out on yours, does that have any factor in any of this? I think it definitely does. What about yeah, lack I mean, of privacy? Uh, the lack of privacy, I think, is... is a significant uh, factor you know nobody wants you know in an ideal world you have that spectacular view over the over the lake or or with a beautiful vista of the skyline but uh, in reality you know you're, you're almost touching a distance touching distance away from your neighbor across in the next building so I think that's that's a part of it um, and I don't know about about you Scott but if if you've ever stepped out on a balcony on on the 50th floor of a condo building it's it's uh, one hell of a terrifying experience. You know, the, wind is, uh, you know, the wind is howling. You know, the last thing you want to do is be peeking out over the edge. So I think there's a variety of factors that you have to, to consider. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny because people aren't using balconies um, that often, but you ask people and they still want one. And I think it's, you know, they, they just like the idea of having that escape. They don't want to feel boxed in. And it's very easy to feel that way when you're living in a, in a high-rise. Uh, is that what it is? Is it's the chance just to stick your head out, breathe some fresh air, and get out of the glass and concrete box that you're in? Or is it, is it a Canadian thing where we're just used to space, so we want it? I mean, is there a demand for balconies in other parts of the world? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, in a lot of other markets, they don't have building condo stock like New York, for example, has a significantly older condo stock. So it's very different there. People did the, you know, far fewer condos are built in New York with, with any outdoor space. Uh, last report I read was 10% of condos that are built in New York have outdoor space. So it certainly seems to be a Canadian thing to have that or to want that connection to, to the outside world. I think that could be a part of it. But you know, I think we all have somewhere deep inside us some kind of innate need to want to be able to escape. And, uh, you know, when you're living in, in a, in a built-up area, a condo can often, you know, if you don't want to ride the elevator down and, and, and get outside, the, the balcony can be that escape. 
Is there a better way to do this, uh, Andrew? And by that, I mean, you know, can we learn something from Europe here? Is it, you know, somebody was saying rather than balconies, just doors that open up, which have railings on them so you can expose uh, uh, air and, and such uh, to the inside of the unit. What, what, is there a different way of doing this? Is there a better way to, to have a balcony? I think so. Uh, and obviously it's very subjective. Everybody has their own opinion, but certainly seems like we're um you know we're getting to a point now where people might be more conscious of uh the fact that when you know when you have a balcony that sticks out from your condo that that's not incredibly energy efficient most balconies are an extension of the interior concrete slab so with no thermal breaks to prevent any heat loss it's not a very efficient uh thing and you know you mentioned the french balconies that's not a bad idea at all uh you know the ability to open up the exterior of your unit and still have that fresh air coming in and the ability to to lean out over the balcony and, and enjoy the view without actually having to step out onto one. I think that could be a good idea. You talked about how the balcony is just an extension of the of the floor pad, a concrete pad. Mm-hmm. So in sense, you've got like a giant heat sink there. It's like a giant radi- radiator, right. uh, meaning that the, you know the hot core uh, is cooled by the fins going to the outside. How much does that affect the inter uh, the working the inner workings of the building and mechanics and such? Well, I don't have a. I mean, I don't have an exact uh, answer to that, but it is definitely a factor. And, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt that as we move forward and, and try to become more energy efficient um, in general, that, uh, you know, when you look at condo living well into the 21st century, this could be something that developers and, and buyers are going to have to become more accustomed to because you do lose a lot of heat and uh, it does bring a lot of cold in, in the winter. So it just makes, you know, running a, an efficient uh, condo or running your condo efficiently much more much more difficult. I saw somewhere, and I'm sure it was somewhere in Europe, where uh, there was uh, some sort of setup where they actually had like a pop-up or pop-out balcony. Your thoughts mm. on that? Have you seen that? <laughs> Just like no, the pop-out on the side one. of a trailer, you know what I mean? Yeah, I wouldn't fancy that on the 40th floor. To be honest. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I, I, you know. I think rooftop terraces are, are also something that... Um, I know a lot of people who who have the balcony that's forty square feet, and you know you can you can barely swing a cat. Yeah. So you know, getting some you know good use out of a communal rooftop terrace could be one thing. Um, it, are and, those uh, are those increasing in demand? Where people want to at least go up on the roof, maybe have a swimming pool, have something, have some sort of outdoor amenities up there. One hundred percent. I mean, I think people, you know, when there's there's a trade off in, in living in a condo, and uh, you know, outdoor space can often be that trade off. And so there is a demand for people to have, you know, something a bit more expansive. And so if you've got a nice rooftop terrace where you can barbecue, um, you know, where you can go for a dip and, and you have those 360 views of the city, I think there's definitely a lot of demand for that. And, you know, more people perhaps are, are looking to that space as, as a way to, to escape as a as opposed to their, you know, fairly small, fairly small balcony. Are condos continually or will they continue to get smaller? Are these uh, going to continue to be for, you know, starter home scenarios or are we going to see more two, three, four bedroom condos? Is that, is that, will we ever see that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely been a push for that um, for, from, from some ends. I think uh, the government are trying to, uh, in, insist upon larger units with more projects moving forward. 
so that there is that variety and that not everything that's being built is, you know, 400 square feet. But at the end of the day, it's also a pricing issue. Um, you know, units are getting smaller because prices are continuing to rise. And insofar that condos are the first point of entry into the real estate market for most people, you know, to buy a house these days anywhere in Toronto, for example, it's, you know, you've got to have a seven-figure budget for the for the most part. So condos are that entry point into the market. And insofar that, you know, prices are continuing to grow at, a, you know, 25% last year in one year, uh, it's, you know, developers are building smaller to keep prices lower. So, you know, mm. it's um, it's a sort of a catch-22. You know, it's uh, if, you, if you want to be in a AAA location, um, you know, the, that does come uh, at a premium. And um, that's not just in price, but it's also now in, in square footage. Units are getting smaller and smaller. But if you look at other markets, like in, uh, in Asia, in, in Tokyo, and, and other major cities, you know, Toronto, by comparison, is still affordable and the units are still relatively large. So, you know, it's, it's all, it's all, it depends on your perspective. It, are you concerned at all about a condo saturation point in southern Ontario, or is it just a reality? It's just the way it is as, as homes and everything else become so expensive. Well, you know, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. It's, uh, you know, when, you know, what will happen moving forward? And, you know, there's two very distinct schools of thought, Scott. You know, one, one group thinks that, you know, insofar that uh, the GTA continues to be a place where people want to come and move and live and, and raise a family. You know, last year, 173,000 people moved to the GTA and we only added 15,000 new units. You know, we have a supply and demand issue. So insofar that uh, that, that phenomenon continues, I think that we're going to, you know, I don't see any slowing down in the condo market, but the other end of that spectrum are people who believe that we're long overdue for a correction. So, you know, nobody knows exactly what will happen moving forward. I mean, if I had to, to give you my educated guess, it would be that, um, you know, I think we'll continue to see moderate growth. I don't think we're going to see a collapse in any way. And, and I hope we don't see continued price increases of 25, 30% every year. I don't think that's healthy, but, um, you know, I don't see the fundamentals changing anytime soon. Advice for those thinking of purchasing one. You know, do your due diligence. I mean, we've created a website at condos.ca that has a lot of very good information. So, you know, we're all about transparency and, and uh, raising the bar with respect to giving people the information and tools that they need to make an educated decision. So do your due diligence. Make sure that you understand pricing. You know, we, we're the only website that offers price per square foot information. So if you want to get into a market like uh, the condo market and make sure that you're making the most informed, educated decision possible, use all the tools that are there at your disposal and also make sure you're working with somebody who knows the market that you're interested in you know i mean i'm a i'm a downtown toronto guy so if you're looking there that's i can certainly add a lot of value but if you're looking for a condo up in richmond hill i don't even know how to get to richmond hill so let alone add any value when i get there so it's it's, it's important to be working with somebody who understands the market that you're looking in and uh, can really add value Andrew Harold has been with us, partner, condos.ca. He's a licensed realtor, law specialist at mrlop.ca. Andrew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about social media because it seems we've been talking about it for the last 100 years, or at least that's what it feels like, as this continues to take over our lives, no matter really what age, what demographic we are in, there is a social media site for you. Just ask your kids. 
Has it peaked, though? Has it got to the point where the novelty of taking pictures of our food and us doing this and doing that, and has it worn off? And now social media has settled in, and it's part of our routine, part of our life in some way, perhaps part of our business. So now we know what we use it for. We use it for that, and that's it. The, the, no longer the the bright and shininess of it all it, capturing as our opinion. We've now sort of fallen into a ritual, and it, it appears as if, uh, although these sites certainly still growing in uh, developing countries that are starting to get them, uh, in the U.S. and Canada and the Western world, it appears like they pretty much have peaked. But have they? Let's bring in Katie LaBelle, assistant professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, an expert in digital marketing, social media, and social media marketing, and is with us now. Katie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well, and you? I'm well, thanks. Has our use of social media peaked, or have we just kind of, is the novelty worn off, or is it just kind of settled in and we know now what the heck we're supposed to use this for? I think we're just settling in. Um, I think social media is just starting to enter that maturity phase of that um, product growth cycle. Um, I mean, you think back, Facebook actually opened up to the broader public back in 2006, so it's been around for a long time. Um, And I think we're finally starting to get to that point. Um, You know, it it experienced exponential growth uh, over the past decade, um, and it really fundamentally changed our communication infrastructure, and it's become deeply embedded in our culture. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere, but I do think that it's starting to become more strategic. We're starting to finally be to the stage where we can refine it. Um, I'm sure new as as with any technology, there will be new platforms that come up to meet consumer behavior and consumer needs. Um, But I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's just starting to reach that maturity phase. So how is it different now? You talked about 2006. Man, that's hard to believe. I know. Uh, How is it different? Some of my friends are getting pretty old. Uh, (laughs) How is it different now? How do we use it differently? It's no longer a toy as much as it was when it first came out. I think we're to the point now um, where we're becoming more strategic in the way that we use it as consumers. And I think um, probably more... As soon as you stay strategic, that sounds like it's no more fun. Uh, Well, because it's become so embedded in our lifestyle. I think Pew actually just came out with some interesting research not so long ago. Um, And they said 62% of the population is using social media now as their primary source for news. Um, So we're not necessarily going on there um, and and putting pictures of our our dinners up as we we once were. We're looking at it as a news source um, within that same Pew study. Um, they said that 41% of Americans hadn't actually re- read or consumed anything more than a social media headline um, in terms of their news consumption. So it's become embedded in different ways, and, and our uses have kind of expanded around it. It's the go-to source if we're looking for um, sports updates and different news updates. Uh, so I think just the way that we're using it has changed um, beyond, I guess, just connecting with our social circle. Does it concern you that 62% of it are using it for that purpose? In some ways, yes. <laughs> As a researcher, I think um, you can get into some of the agenda-setting um, issues. I don't think that necessarily a lot of sources or outlets, they don't necessarily know the power that they have um, among those audiences, so that's deeply concerning. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to figure out right now, and um, that kind of play right now, certainly with some of the privacy concerns, and we're sorting out really that line between freedom of speech and some of the challenges of bots and the spread of fake news. And that's that's just something that um, we're only starting to kind of 
uh, attack and, and be able to, to kind of rein in a little bit. So from those standpoints, um, we've got a lot of work to do. How does the public feel about digital manipulation? I mean, obviously the story broke in the, in the United States in regard to the election and, and, and how uh, there was outside influence. Uh, and then there almost seemed to be a backlash. Oh, People absolutely. were almost, wait, I'm getting off social media then. Bah, 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 bah. Like, did, did that ever materialize? What, how, how did that change things? Are we becoming more skeptical about this? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree that there was certainly a backlash. I think that there's still um, some misconceptions around what exactly happened. Um, and, and some people were quick to just, you know, there wasn't a lot of traction between people that were actually deleting their Facebook accounts because, again, it's become so embedded in our culture. It was hard for people um, to cut themselves off from such a big part of their lives. Um, but I do think that the privacy concerns are there. I think there's a lot of information that needs to, uh, an education process, I guess, to kind of figure out exactly what was going on with that um, for the broader public. Uh, but there is a, it's inspired really a larger trend in terms of um, going from that broadcast to a, a little bit of a trend towards more of a narrow cast. People are going through and um, they're narrowing their followers to more of their friends and family. They're more cognizant of what they're posting in some cases. So I think education around that um, is going to be a, a continuing trend, and people will, uh, I, you know, it was exciting to be able to reach out and talk to the world at first, but there is some, um, some privacy concerns and issues around that now. So we are, there's research to show that people are kind of narrowing their approach and, and privacy has become a much larger consideration. It's funny because, you know, the great thing you talked about broadcast versus, versus narrowcast and, and, and specific uh, targeted audiences and such. I mean, you know, when you think about it, social media has virtually given everybody a voice. Yes. But that's good and bad, is it not? Or is it just all good? Uh, I think it's become very polarizing. Um, there's actually a really small subset of people that are, are using social media as a platform to have a voice. And it tends to be some of those extremist points of view. Um, there's a large audience, probably the largest audience that uses social media that's just kind of sitting back and watching it all happen and consuming it, not necessarily using their voice. Um, so I think that's something from a research standpoint, again, we're just starting to get a better understanding of um, consumer uses and, and consumer behaviors around that. So it's another area for growth um, from a research standpoint that we're going to be able to better understand um, consumer behaviors and how they're changing with regards to social media use. Does the public realize how the information may be manipulated or biased to their interests? And is that any different than traditional media? Or is it more extreme? Uh, that's, a, that's a big question. It's loaded. <laughs> um, I, th- I do not think the general public has a, a full understanding um, just, uh, you know, with regard to how much of their their digital f- fingerprints are being used um, for, for sponsorship. Um, I do think we're starting to get a better sense as researchers and, and policymakers in some cases. And so I think um, those we're going to be able to have to... Um, develop some policies around some of the... It was, it's been essentially the wild, wild west for a long time with social media, and it mm-hmm. seems that we're kind of coming to a, a reckoning of sorts. It's almost like when the internet first came about, exactly. and everybody... Yeah, I mean, look at the differences in the workplace back then compared to now. I mean, yeah. there was no guidelines, it seems, or policies when it all first happened. Um, no, I think the policy development is kind of the... That's the stage that we're going to be at right now, and that's going to... It's going to be difficult because, similar to the internet, um, you know, it's a new business model. You're going to have to... 
it's going to be it's going to be a tricky process. Um, but I think that's kind of where we're at. It's been it's been so unfiltered um, for so long, and that's kind of how people have come to to know it. And we're to the point now where it does need to be reined in a little bit. I think to just um, for those protections, and again, with the, around the education component, so that everybody knows. Um, what to expect. You talked about how 62% get their uh, their news coverage from these sort of organizations. What does that say moving forward? How, because how, obviously it's very targeted, it's very biased, it's, it's, it's all about analytics. How, how do we, how do we keep the message clear? I mean, now, my goodness, we're listening to Rudy Giuliani say the truth isn't the truth, which is even making it more confusing. But, but, but how, do we, how do we cut through all of this? Well, I think, um, I think organizations, social media organizations, are going to have to realize that they've become a news dissemination source um, and not, not just an entertainment platform. Um, so there is going to have to be some responsibility that comes out of some of those organizations. Um, it's it's going to, it's on a learning curve for everybody, and it's a steep learning curve. Um, you've got to remember that Generation Z they're larger than the baby boomers and Gen Y, um, and social media is all they've ever known. They've been groomed to kind of expect these snackable sound bites of media that align with their worldviews in a lot of ways. And it's I mean they use it as advocacy to mobilize the masses. Um, second screen experiences have become a big part of their lives. Um, so it's just a, it's a big swing with regard to consumer behavior. Um, so we're going to kind of have to, as, again, with researchers and policymakers come together and, and be able to um, look after the, the best interests of society at large and, and figure out what that will look like. Uh, and, and, again, I think that responsibility of um, just setting up some, some policies and regulations around it such that people are on the same page and know what to expect from um, these platforms is going to be a, an important step. Has traditional media become the enemy? I would say no. Uh, I think that there's been some storylines that have been shaped um, to suggest that, but uh, again, that's kind of the extreme voices that are, are talking. Uh, there seems to be some backlash against traditional media. There seems to be backlash uh, with social media. Have we come to a tipping point where we are questioning what is truth and what is not? Have, have we got there yet? I think you have to learn to be a discriminant um, media consumer. Uh, and that's, I think that you can still access the truth if you put in the effort. Um, and that's just something that as consumers, you, you have to put in your homework in a lot of cases. How come the extremists seem to be using social media more than the silent majority? And, 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 is, and is giving, well, how can I phrase this? Um, with more and more people having a voice, can we determine who the majority is? Can we determine whether they're fringe but loud? Uh, how, do we, how do we gauge all that? Uh, well, I think that there are still trusted sources out there. Um, I think if you are able to, um, again, a lot of times it's reading beyond the headlines. Uh, I think that stat where it, I think 40% um, are not reading beyond the headline, that's something that as society we need to move beyond. You have to be able to um, fact check and, and do your homework again to make sure that you're not just, um, you know, internalizing a, a headline and actually kind of looking at the source and who wrote it and, 
and being a little bit more discriminant in your your um, consumption. Is there something we we all know how these sites have impacted our world and our life? Um, and, 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 you know, for the, the longest time it was MySpace, then Facebook. Uh, now it's gone to, uh, to uh, sites with more uh, photography, such as Instagram and such. Is there something new out there that's about to blow our doors off that will make the impact that this already has? Uh, there's, I mean, there's always something in the works. I don't, I'm not going to be able to, I, I can't tell you the next hottest thing that's going to be out there, but I'm sure... And there are, are platforms that are um, cognizant of the the frustration people are having with the privacy of some of these social media sites. So I'm sure there's something in the works around that, um, or just something that's tightening, um, you know, some of the the infrastructure that they've got now. I know Instagram just actually released; they are up to a billion uh, active users monthly, so they're still growing. Um, and I think the the visual nature of some of those platforms um, can break cut across some of the different language barriers. So uh, Instagram still seems to be a, a platform that's growing rapidly. Um, As they tighten down security, do they become less profitable because they're selling less data? I think that there's going to be some innovation around the business models going forward. Uh, I'm not sure what that will look like, but I'm, I, I know that um, that's going to have to be something that's addressed going forward. What does social media have to do to stay relevant and, as you said, go from beyond a toy, beyond the novelty? They have to be in tune with uh, consumer behavior and consumer um, needs. And so staying a step ahead of that can be really tricky in such a fast-moving environment. Um, but being able to, uh, to meet their needs and, and, and satisfy that will be um, how they stay relevant, I think. Will it get to the point where people say, I mean, like the backlash that happened, uh, you know, uh, a few months ago in regard to the election, and, and there's Mark Zuckerberg up there trying to explain himself. Is there anything that can take these these sites down? I mean, is Facebook going on forever? Well, they're awfully big right now. Mm. Um, I don't think that anything's too big to fail necessarily, uh, but they are they are a pretty prominent part of our culture right now. Um, so that you know, when something's that deeply embedded into people's everyday lives, uh, it, it's it's tough to. I mean, I think the ripple effects are something that are seen more long term. Has it become a waste of time for people? I don't believe so. Uh, I think, like I said, it's a, it's a very big part of a lot of people's daily routines. It's how they're getting their news. Um, it's how they're interacting um, with their social circles. I do think that that will be. You'll see it evolve. Um, but I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. Any other breakthroughs when it comes to monetizing this? Is it, you know, is it, a, we all thought that it was advertising, but really it's about selling data. I mean, is that really the, the way to, to make money off these platforms? And again, is that something that the user's comfortable with? I, like I said, I think there's going to be some innovation around the business models of social media going forward. Um, subscriptions have been something that have been discussed so that they would be able to alleviate some of the dependence on um, advertising. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that gets pushed forward. Um, but again, that'll be it'll be interesting to watch and see how they, they deal with that. What is your greatest fear with social media or any of this moving forward? Uh, well... I, I mean, I, that's, a, that's another big question, but I think that, um, again, just having people still be curious and still be interested in and being able to kind of 
decipher good news from from um, you know from from suspicious sources, for example. Um, I think that's an important skill, and I, and I hope that that's something that people don't um, don't lose sight of. Do you think, you know, we often hear, uh, especially older generations, talking about younger generations and how they're consumed with this, how everybody's looking down, nobody's looking up, how, although we seem to be talking to more people, having more friends, more acquaintances, we certainly seem to be having less face-to-face social connection. Do you see that entering into this discussion at all? Well, uh, in some ways, um, in some ways, there's been some really impressive um, examples of bringing people together. Uh, so I think that there's there's probably a, an argument and a counterargument to a lot of those different debates. Um, but I do I do still see that there are there's significant opportunity to use social media for good, and I, I like to view it through that positive lens. What are your thoughts on the way politicians have used this, specifically the president? Well, uh, I think that, by and large, people have become more engaged in politics. It's um, something that people are certainly paying more attention to. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, it, it's, that's kind of a personal, a personal political view. Um, I, I would like to see it used more positive ways. Uh, but is he, whether you agree with it or not, is he using it effectively or irresponsibly? Again, I think a lot of people are, are watching and paying more attention to politics than they have in a long time. Um, in terms of his actual use, I think that that's a, that's a very sticky conversation. I hear you. All right, Katie LaBelle has been with us, Assistant Professor, the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, expert in digital marketing, social media, and social media marketing. Katie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.